Hello everyone, you are listening to the Igbo Initiative podcast with Ugochi Onyewu. Welcome to the show. Hello everyone, welcome to the Igbo Initiative podcast where we celebrate Igbo culture by speaking to amazing women in different walks of life who are either Igbo or have a very close tie to the Igbo culture. Today we speak with Dr. Angela Onwanibe. Angela is a board-certified psychiatrist with over 30 years experience in general medicine and 17 years experience in psychiatry and psychopharmacology. Angela provides expert diagnosis and compassionate care for patients with a full range of mental health needs. Angela is the founder of Solutions for Mindfulness. Solutions for Mindfulness is located in Columbia, Maryland, providing psychiatric services for adults, including evaluation, diagnosis, medication management, and therapy services. Angela was born in eastern Nigeria, but grew up in London and Lagos, Nigeria. Her exposure to Igbo culture came much later in life when she started medical school in Enugun, eastern Nigeria. On today's show, we discuss a number of myths surrounding mental health and special signs to watch out for in a loved one or oneself. Good morning, Angela. I'm so grateful for your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Gucci. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, this is, this is going to be a really, really good conversation. I'm very excited because I know this is an area that our people don't typically speak about. So I'm really interested in getting your insights. So thanks again. Maybe you can just start off um, just telling the audience a little bit about yourself and life growing up. Where were you born? Did you grow up in the East? Did you grow up speaking Igbo? Just take us a little bit um, through your childhood, if you would. Okay. Um, so um, the, the answer to the big question is a no. Did not grow up in the East. No, did not grow up speaking Igbo. <laughs> so I've kind of come to appreciate the Igbo culture and the heritage kind of through a much longer path. So I was born, I was actually born in the East, but left when I was just very few months old, my parents took me to England where my dad was working as a Zen Nigerian embassy. So mm. we, myself and my two brothers, we actually grew up in, in London, in the mm. UK. Mm. And we came back to Nigeria in the early 70s, if I'm, yes, in the mid-70s after the war. So we came back to Nigeria and my parents settled in Lagos. So my last year of elementary school or primary school, as we call it in Nigeria, was actually in Lagos. And um, my brothers were a couple of years younger than me. So they went to, they had a couple more years in primary school. And my first, so my last year of primary school was in Lagos. And we, um, my parents are really big on education. And so I think that's where I get a lot of my thinking in terms of what is important and Mm -hmm. how to prioritize because there's so much, anybody, there's so much to do that it's really impossible. My parents were really big on education. So we mm-hmm. ended up in the Lebanese International School, because I think when my mom was relocating from London and she was, she wanted, she was going to be in Lagos based on my dad and his job, and you mm-hmm. know how women are. Um, her question was, what is the best school <laughs> my kids can go to right. in Lagos? Mm-hmm. I gave her a couple of choices. One of them was the American International um, and then the other one was the Lebanese International. So I think 
you know, based on school fees, you know, she we ended up at the Lebanese International, which is kind of odd mm. because Arab, second language was Arabic, first language was English, but um, it, it was a great experience really. And part of my younger brothers actually can speak a little bit of Arabic because of that, and um, and they can write it too. So wow. it was a great experience. It was completely out of our comfort zone because we, I mean, we were raised in England. Both my brothers were born in England. I came back to. Nigeria when I was about 11 and my first port of call day one started in Lebanese International School mm-hmm. that I went secondary school was in Lagos one of my best experiences with was Holy Child College um, in Lagos mm-hmm. and, and so I went to HCC for five years and kind of made you know friendships of a lifetime as we all tend to do mm-hmm. in, in secondary school and, and high school and mm-hmm. then my first contact with the East was really college, so mm-hmm. going to medical school. So even though we all did the traditional, it's we're all in Lagos, we're going home for Christmas, find a way to leave on the 22nd, my parents, and drive, and that <laughs> awful drive across the bridge, which I still remember. Yes, yes. <laughs> and the days of traffic. I remember one particular year, we had to actually sleep on one side of the bridge in the car, because it was how, you know, those days it was it oh. was a night. All the evils left Lagos to the east, and yeah. whatever we did, we had to arrive in the east by the 24th, and then we'd have that traditional week and the New Year's Day, and then there's this big haul back to Lagos. Yes, so yes. my early memories of the east were not as pleasant because right. of that drive. <laughs> <laughs> and because of that drive to the village. It, it's um, interesting because when I talk to people, one of the reasons I love doing this, when I talk to people, I learn so much about them that I didn't know. You know, it's very... And it's funny, your experience is slightly similar to mine because I grew up in Lagos as well. I I remember that long haul to the east for Christmas. We could never figure out why they needed to do that, but that's okay. Exactly, exactly. I guess they wanted us to have that uh, familiarity with the east, even though we didn't grow Mm -hmm. up there. But I I guess fast-forwarding a little to now, we'll kind of come back a little bit and understand your path to what you're doing now. But I, I know you have children. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just curious as to whether or not they have they have been introduced to Igbo culture and whether or not they speak or are interested in speaking. So, so that's a great question. So, like I said, um, kind of fast forward into now. I think my kids are very interested in the Igbo culture. I didn't do as much when they were much, much younger to get them to learn how to speak Igbo. But my experience was I never spoke Igbo until I was a medical student. Mm-hmm. And I went to the campus and everybody was so shocked I couldn't speak Igbo. And then I learned it just by immersion and being in Enugu for six years of med school. Mm-hmm. And so I, I am actually very fluent in Igbo. My going to the East was one of my favorite experiences in my whole life because mm. I feel more grounded. I kind of have that feeling of, you know, this is who I am. I'm more familiar with the culture. I'm, you know, so it's just, it was such a great experience for me. And I think one, that was one of the reasons why I started recruiting my youngest brother, who is a big man, big brother now, Paul, to mm. come to Enugu campus. And so I said, look, don't do what Tony did because mm. Tony ended up living in Lagos and Ilori mm-hmm. and he continued that. And I think there is a difference even now between mm-hmm. myself and Paul and Tony because of our experiences of being kind of embedded in the Igbo culture and kind of oh. understanding a bit more of where we're from and who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that makes a big difference. So in terms of my children, I didn't make as much of an effort when they were younger simply because I didn't have that when I was younger and mm-hmm. I don't think 
it cost me anything. Mm-hmm. I feel, mm-hmm. you know, I still feel, you know, and I, I mean, my first touch of of being part of evil land and evil culture, and even my first evil word, I probably spoke it when I was like, you know, 17 mm-hmm. in, in college. Mm-hmm. So I haven't done that. So my kids, do they speak evil fluently? No. Do they speak a little bit, some words? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the efforts I've made and how have I looked at it is really, really what I did was immersion, you know, so I, I expose them a lot to the, to the music, to the books. Mm-hmm. They, you know, we have a lot of prominent evil authors and I know my son was like 10 years old when he read, when he read Chinua Achebe, Things Fall Apart mm-hmm. and when they started in his high school, he was so excited. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a right for his, for his high school. So he was so excited because he'd read it and we talk about evil culture and I have a friend of mine, a couple of friends who are authors who've written mm-hmm. um, a lot of books, Chimamanda Adichie and Ngozi mm-hmm. Achebe, mm-hmm. who wrote, she was my, um, a year ahead of me in med school, and she was never a writer, and then she wrote the book, um, the, um, the, Ghost, the the Blacksmith's Daughter. Yes. So my kids yes. have been inspired by that. And so they, they understand the culture, they mm-hmm. speak emotion, they talk to friends who have a lot of who who have kids, and so we spend a lot of time doing that. So do we actively mm-hmm. Get out and speak and go to a class to speak. I haven't mm-hmm. really found it necessary. One of yes. the one of my favorite stories is my daughter um, was in um, elementary school here, and one one of one of the days she was like about fifth grade, and the teachers called me and said, "Oh, I'm so excited for Anagam. She's doing so well. Mm-hmm. You know, she's um, you know she's you know, she, she she's really." Taking on English and she's writing all these essays and <laughs> and we're just surprised. How did she do it? I mean, how how were you able to transition her and get her so accomplished? <laughs> and I laughed. I'm like, as of then, Anika. So I said to them, they were so embarrassed. I said, Anika was born in the U.S. has never left the U.S. because of that, she hadn't even been to Nigeria. So she had never left the U.S. So she's raised here, born here, everything here. So they were like. Open their mouths and close. <laughs> so they thought she was, you know, you know, you know, was like, we didn't even have to put her in English as a second language. Oh, so goodness. for me, they were embarrassed. But I actually kept made them feel good about that. Say, you know yeah. what? This is the best news I've had this year. Yes. And people actually think my daughter was yes. raised in Nigeria. No, that's excellent. You I'm know, like, no. Oh. Yeah, that's actually that's excellent because I think it's. I, I wouldn't even call it a struggle because you've actually mm-hmm. made a good point that it's not entirely necessary. But you know, a lot of us who live outside Nigeria and our children mm-hmm. don't necessarily speak the language. I think yeah. you've raised an interesting point. At least they have that interest and awareness. And yes, pride. awareness and yes. interest, and I think you, yes. you can pick it up when you exactly. introduce them to it and immerse them. I mean, exactly. my fifth grade daughter was—they assumed that she was exactly. English as a second language, had come from Nigeria, yes. was living in Nigeria. Yeah, that's and, a good that point, like, and that yeah, should be that a source like, of encouragement to people out there. Mm-hmm. Who are like, well, my children don't speak because we do more than we think we do. You know, yes, they're proud to be Nigerian. They're proud mm-hmm. to be Igbo. They understand. Yes. So that's that's a yes. great point. That's a great point. So let me pivot a little bit because we we talked a little bit about you going to medical school in the East and how that formed um, a big part of your identity as an Igbo lady. Uh, So talk to us about um, what led you to become a psychiatrist today. If you can just take us through that path and we'll kind of pivot into that. Okay, so what led me to be a psychiatrist? As we know, in our culture, psychiatry is really non-existent, especially... Mm -hmm. 
currently now in, in Nigeria as a whole, not necessarily the Igbo culture, but we all, part of medical school, we all go through rotations. I never wanted to be a psychiatrist. They've seen, uh, psych lecturers were seen as kind of off-the-wall, crazy types. They all wore three watches. and you know, They would come in, and of course, the stories were really interesting. And for those of us who, people who've gone to college and everybody has to take that mandatory psych 101 mm-hmm. or psychology and human behavior, you know, it's interesting. Nobody can deny that. We all found it interesting, but... Um, the, the the psychiatry was really limited to people who were very, very sick, very psychotic, mm. very not in touch with reality. And I think a lot of our teachers at some point were not in touch with reality. So it was, I didn't really have that sense. But I, when I did my master's in England, so I think it was 1992, 93, I um, decided to do a public health degree in England and at University of London. Mm. So I was doing a master's program in public health with um, a focus really on public health, health financing. And so we had a project in which we collaborated with the World Bank on how healthcare is financed. And one of the things we were particularly looking at on our team is um, how physicians are paid. Does it influence how they practice and their output? So I had a whole group of physicians that I had to see in different hospitals in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, you know, the GYN, um, the internal medicine, the surgeons. And all of them, and you know, and I think um, stereotypes are there for a reason because they, people actually are like, to some degree, like their stereotypes. They're not over yeah. overemphasizing, but I think there's a reason why we're we stereotypes. So mm-hmm. the usual thing we all think about surgeons—they're so busy, and they really are. Mm-hmm. So I could never get the surgeons to interview them. Mm-hmm. They're always so busy. I could get there at six o'clock in the morning or five thirty and talk to them, and um, then the same thing with internal medicine people. They were really busy. They were always looking at, you know, drug levels and lab work, and you're talking to them and they're looking at all this lab work. And GYN folk, they really were always feeling sleepy. I mean, you talk mm-hmm. to them and they're like, not enough, they've been up all night mm-hmm. catching babies. So that was kind of my view of, my first real view of the practice of Western medicine, because mm-hmm. I was like, Nigeria Medical School, I trained in Nigeria, I was mm-hmm. working in Nigeria, and then decided, mm-hmm. medical school, like in the 80s, I decided mm-hmm. to come up and, and kind of do do things differently. So, that, so I've meeting all these different groups and, you know, just like the stereotypes, what we all know, they kind of, most of them did fit it. I can't talk about everybody. And then it was my time, turn to, inter, you know, to interview the psychiatrist. And they and I would go to the hospital and say, oh, the psychiatrist don't get here till 9.30. I'm like, okay, ding, ding. <laughs> okay, it's 9.30. I'm like, okay. Well, you could meet them in the cafeteria. They're probably at breakfast. I'm like, whoa. Wow. First time I heard of a physician group could actually have breakfast. I would go to the cafeterias in about three of the hospitals and mm. I would introduce myself and, you know, I'm doing this project and I need to ask you a few questions about your work and the psychiatrist would always be the one that would say, have a seat, mm. you know, and they would talk to me about, the, you know, the things and they had all these stories that they they shared and they were just having a great time. Mm. And so that was like, wow, you know, mm. and, you know, they had, they had stories of the wazoo. They, all their patients were interesting. Mm. And it was really the same for, you know, like 75% of the hospitals I went to. Um, each time I go out, I see the psychiatrist, and um, they would be the ones to say, oh, I can't talk now, I'm just finishing up, but, you know, why don't we meet at the pub next door? And in England, you can mm. meet at the pub and drink, yeah. drink, working hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were always interested in talking and sharing their life experiences and talking about their patients and mm-hmm. 
had this excitement. So when eventually I decided to move to the U.S., and, you know, if you leave from Nigeria to the U.S., you have to do another residency. Mm-hmm. And all my friends were internal medicine and family practice and GYN. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, go along. We'll get your residency here. And I'm like, no, I'm mm-hmm. doing psychiatry. Well, like, yeah. I, like, you're doing psychiatry? Are you sure? Why? Mm-hmm. I said, nobody knew anybody who yes. was doing psychiatry. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So everybody was like, no, you shouldn't be doing psychiatry. You thought of, I'm like, no, I'm doing psychiatry. And that was, I was so sure that was what I wanted to do because of the stories. And it's very rare that you meet a physician that, yes, we all burn out and we're all tired. And sometimes the articles were really dedicated and they love what they do. And they could, you know, but um, one of the psychiatrists told me that, oh, you're going to love this. And every, it's so broad and every year is different. And. I can actually say that because I've been in psychiatry now for 23 years mm. and every year is better than the last year. Mm, interesting. I'm as excited as I am today as I was when I started at Georgetown in 1990, I think it was 95. That's, that's, that's wonderful. That's really great. I mean, it's, I'm so glad you're on the show because obviously you're helping to shed a different light on psychiatry. <laughs> And, you know, it sounds like you're a woman who's charted your own course. You're not someone that follows a crowd or does what everyone is doing or does what you think might be the easiest or most lucrative, right? You've kind of defined your own path. So what would you say is your greatest strength as a psychiatrist? Um, I I think it's a good question. I was thinking about, you know, what are some of the things I like and what are some of the things that are challenges? Mm. Um, And I think... I, I think psychiatry, I think, has done more for me than I've done for it. Mm. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think it's done more for me. And I think it's made me just really a better person overall. It's made me a better friend. Mm. It's made me a better listener. I mean, one of the things we t- we think we we learn in the psychiatry is really, you know, the word active listening. Mm. A lot of us, we don't listen to people in mm. argument, discussions. We're just trying to get our own point across. And um, I'm somebody who tries to kind of think quickly mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm guilty of that really not listening psychiatry kind of taught me to really listen so mm-hmm. I think it's made me a better friend it's made me a better mother for sure mm-hmm. a better partner I'm a better colleague mm-hmm. a better mm-hmm. friend so mm-hmm. I think and I think what I bring to psychiatry in terms of I think the only thing I would say is what I bring is one I like to teach and mm-hmm. I spent 14 years teaching at the University of Maryland Department of Psychiatry before I moved into my own practice. Mm-hmm. And I still teach. I still volunteer to teach. Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of time teaching. I think what, it, it, what I bring is really a normalization of psychiatry really being a medical um, a medical profession. And mm-hmm. It's something people who are crazy do. Yeah. You know, they're not crazy people. You know, so they're just really regular people. Mm-hmm. And we have a branch of medicine. And it, it, it has a chemical background. You know, mm-hmm. just the same... I say to a lot of my patients, just the same way um, you, you're diabetic and it's a chronic illness and insulin, the lack of insulin or your body's being resistant to insulin is what makes you diabetic. Mm-hmm. So your body can use insulin. And the same way with psychiatry, it's, an, it's moderated by chemicals in the brain, serotonin mm-hmm. and epinephrine. Mm-hmm. And it's your lack of production or your inability of your brain to use those chemicals mm-hmm. and create the symptoms of feeling sad or feeling angry and irritable mm. or really chemical, especially when it begins to affect your functioning. And mm. so kind of allowing and normalizing it and allowing people to see that, no, I'm not crazy, I'm not possessed by demons, you know, I'm not mm. a bad 
medicine, but I just mm-hmm. may be medically ill. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that you know that's what I would say that I bring is just teaching that and talking about that consistently and making people and normalizing it and kind of working with the stigma. Hmm. Of everybody thinks, you know, if I say I'm feeling anxious about something, then maybe it's, I, I don't have the right background or I was abused by my parents or I'm weak. I'm not praying enough or right. the relationship right. with God right. is at fault right. and all those things. And I'm like, no, 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 stop. Yeah. You have diabetes. You mm. have diabetes. Mm. The only difference is that your diabetes is in the brain. Mm. You just stop. Hmm. You don't, you know, <laughs> we, if we correct your ability to absorb the diabetic hormone, in this case, serotonin, mm. not epinephrine, mm. or dopamine, then you're not going to feel that way. Mm. And just the same way the diabetic person, if you, you're going to have to reduce some of your stresses, just the same way the diabetic person can't have a chocolate cake every day. You know, you, you, you can't eat this amount of stress every day. And sometimes it doesn't have to be a medical intervention. We don't have to give you medicine. Just like a diabetic, when you present initially, the yes. doctor will say, exercise, yes. cut this out, mm-hmm. stop eating chocolate cake, mm-hmm. get fresh fruits and vegetables, and let's see. Let's see whether just decreasing your stress, making sure you have more sleep, meditating, mm-hmm. reflecting, having a counselor. Let's see whether that mental exercise will be enough, you know, and, you know, for you to feel like you can do your function again and do the things you need to do. Otherwise, just like diabetes, you will experience the sequelae. You see, the, the issue with, I think, a lot of times with mental illness is that people don't understand that there is a price to pay for lack of treatment. You know, in a diabetic, if you don't treat your diabetes, the price you pay is you're going to lose your kidneys, you're going to mm-hmm. have, you know, have problems with your mm-hmm. feet or feeling or not walk mm-hmm. or have heart disease or get a, have a stroke. Mm-hmm. So people are motivated for treatment because you will be sick if you constantly run a blood sugar in the 400s. But then I think in depression and mood instability and um, psychosis, people don't understand that there is that you still pay the price. If you don't treat them, pay the price. And mm-hmm. never going to get to where you need to go mm-hmm. either professionally or academically. You're going, to have, you're going to pay the price in relationships. You're not going to be able to maintain one. You're not going to be able to look after your children. Mm. You're going to always be, you know, you're going to isolate. You may not keep a job. You have a lot of people who, yeah. first time they come to me, they've had 15 jobs. Wow. And yeah. they're like, oh, yeah. okay, this is what's going on. This person did this, this one did that. And I'm like, stop. Mm. You don't have 15 jobs in a two-year period. Mm. You know, it's you. You know, so even if it's just keeping one job and getting promoted, you know, it's, and, you know, we all value our income. And if you don't treat any illness you have, especially mental illness, you're going to face a reduction in your income, your ability to really enjoy life. So it's not about, oh, I want to be a happy, happy person. No, you will face real-time sequelae. Mm. So this is really interesting, Angela, because it really just helps to dispel the myth that mental disorders are this rare condition that happened to other people you know and I think you're helping to bring to bring um, a level of understanding to this you know so I guess what would you say about people who say oh no no mental illness that's something or you know that's something that happens to mad people in the hospital that's something that's very rare or uh, you know, it doesn't have, it doesn't run in our family. You know what I mean? What would you yeah. say? What would you say That's to people like that? I think what I would say to them is that you know, um, it's really, really common. It's about seven percent of the U.S. population. Seven percent, yeah, of the U.S. population, eighteen and older. So it's a, it's almost ten percent 
of an, of an illness. And when I talk about, I'm not talking about just mental illnesses as a whole. I'm just talking about just taking depression. Mm-hmm. If you take all the mental illnesses combined, it affects about 30% of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. By the year 2020, we're already 2018 going to 2019. 2020, even already, depression alone is the number one cause of disability in all the developed world. Mm-hmm. The U.S., the U.K., Norway, Sweden. Hmm. So it's, it's the burden. It, it causes people not to work. Hmm. That's what people are, and then the, the government pays the cost. So it's the number one burden of illness. So it's not heart disease. It's not HIV. Mm-hmm. So when people say it's not common, I'm like, oh, the mm-hmm. numbers don't show that. Mm-hmm. But one of the top ten illnesses presented to a primary care doctor. So the reason why people go to their doctor you know, there are so many reasons, but they're the top 10 and people, and they're the top 10 we talk about, well, treat the top 10 and you can reduce the burden of illness mm-hmm. in any community. Mm-hmm. You know, so the top 10 reasons why people wake up and go to their doctor, they have a headache or they have a blood pressure or they have a respiratory infection mm-hmm. or they feel like they have pain. Mm-hmm. Well, two of those illnesses, depression and anxiety. And they don't really realize that it's depression and anxiety. They, they have three or four times the number of visits to primary care. Mm. They call the healthcare system more mm. because the doctors can't find anything. Yes. I have this pain, they take an x-ray, they can't find anything. Yes. So the two of the major illnesses, the top ten illnesses that present to primary care is depression and anxiety. And 50% of a population that has any population that has a chronic illness. So if you have diabetes, you're 50% more likely to have depression or anxiety. Mm. Any chronic, going chronic pain, you have depression. Period. Mm. <laughs> so, yes. As well, so if you have mm. a chronic illness, not to talk of cancer, and then people think depression is this thing where you can't get out of bed and the roof is about to fall on you. No, mm. it's just questions. And I encourage a lot of people to ask those questions. We call them the PHQ, the Patient Health Questionnaire. Too, have you felt sad in the mm. last two weeks? You know, nearly every day, every day. Not mm. so frequently, mm. you know. Mm. Have you, have, you know, have you felt that? Do you have a loss of interest in the things that you used to like to do? Mm. You know, so, if you like to go out and exercise, or if you mm. like to dance, you like to book meetings, you like to read. Mm. Uh, in the last few weeks, have you done them less? Mm. Are you not doing them at all? Mm. And that's all it is. And if your answers to those are, you know, are positive, yes, I've kind of felt a little low. And we're not talking about can't get out of bed low. That's really mm. at the point where you're very, very ill. Mm. And so we encourage people to get into treatment earlier, you know, and you know, just answer those questions. And we have them online. We have them on our website. Mm. And if you want to drill down. And, and seeking mental health treatment is not necessarily, oh, I have to see a psychiatrist and get medication. Mm. It's really about making that first step, even mm. talking to a counselor or even assessing it yourself. I mean, Google is everybody's best friend now, or Reddit, mm-hmm. or any of these websites. You just go and say, you know, how do I measure, am I depressed? And you be, will be surprised in that it really is just about a loss of interest. Hmm. A loss of interest. Mm-hmm. In the regular activities in the past two weeks, more days than not. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a very low bar. And, you know, and I think all cultures, minority cultures, minimize that we kind of push through a lot when we're not really at our optimum we and we think that's just part of how it is Mm. you know whether you're asian american nigerian american african american japanese american we all do the same thing Mm. you know we push through you got to pray through it you got to be strong you have to do this Mm. and i think just the major culture that caucasians are very very familiar with it and and they have a very low threshold to get into treatment Mm. and 
they have a low threshold of tolerating that disability. I mean, some of, I tell people some of the busiest times in my practice is just when school is about to start, when Christmas is coming. Mm-hmm. And you have all these kids going to college and they're just coming for a mental health checkup. It's the same way we take our kids, mm-hmm. you know, for a routine yes. um, test of the doctor. They just yes. come home, I'm starting college, or classes are starting up back in September, mm-hmm. doctor, oh, and I just want to check. And they don't even know me. Mm-hmm. These are people just like, coming in to do a mental health checkup. Mm-hmm. That's so great. They, they, yeah. they, they get it from mm-hmm. their parents. And, just, mm-hmm. and this is really the, you know, the Caucasian culture, and they mm-hmm. get it from their parents that, mm-hmm. you know, to really outperform and be at the top of your game, mm-hmm. you get mentally healthy. And if it's just getting those tools and using them to shore things up for yourself and, you know, having your toolkit. I tell people it's just like that same toolkit. You, you're keeping, you know, making sure when things and kind mm-hmm. of get a little that you mm-hmm. can tighten up. So you've talked about, which is great, you've talked about, I guess, self-awareness and just sort of checking in, looking at signs. But what if it's uh, a loved one or a child or an adolescent? What are some of the things that we, the listeners, can kind of make sure that we're aware of in others, in other people that we love? And to be able to say, hmm, this person doesn't quite seem to be, yeah. you know what I mean, to be yeah, where they and usually are. Yeah. And I think that's a really an important question. The reason why I say it's important is that um, a lot of times when people are ill and uh, the first people that really get hurt, one, emotionally, and a lot of times physically are the family, close family and friends. So you are, you you really do have to get a family member or a close friend or a partner or a husband or a spouse help, you know, when things are not, you know, when things don't look right. Um, I actually do, I spend part of my life in what we call forensic psychiatry. And in the state of Maryland, there's, we, we have a forensic psychiatry hospital mm-hmm. where um, we only admit patients with first-degree offenses who have um, committed a first-degree offense. So it's either murder one, rape one, first-degree assault or second-degree assault with a firearm mm-hmm. or a deadly weapon mm-hmm. while they were mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And it's very heartbreaking to see a lot of the stories of that could have been avoided. Mm-hmm. And then, sorry to sorry to say, but a lot of Nigerians, I think we're overrepresented in that field. Wow. Um, where, in, you know, in my hospital of about two, the hospital I consult in about 270 people, um, we have about 12, 12 Nigerians, if wow. not more, wow. who are wow. in there. And so wow. if you look at the percentages, that's like 7, 8% of the yes. hospital. And then, yes. you know, Nigerians are not 8% of Maryland. I wish exactly, we were. Exactly. <laughs> so we're overrepresented. So that goes back to your question in that we are not recognizing early, mm. you know, what symptoms are. We minimize them. Mm. And I encourage your listeners that, you know, the first people that get hurt are really family. Mm. Um, we think about the emotional hurt, which as women, and we think we're so strong, but it's not really just emotional, it's physical. People kill their parents. People mm. kill their kids. People kill their husbands. People mm. kill their um, People hurt them. They stab them. So what are those signs? Things that are unusual, mm. and then we want to check in with each other a lot more. How are you feeling? And learn how to listen to the response. Mm. How are you really feeling? Because when you ask somebody how you're feeling, usually the first statement back is, "Oh, I'm fine." No, yes. how are you really feeling? Mm-hmm. You know, I've noticed in the last couple of months or last couple, months, you know, you used to go to the gym after you know mm. work, and you have been doing that. Mm. That lock yourself in the room a lot, so isolation. Mm. You know, walk as much as you used to. Mm. Um, is that, you know, you're, you, when you come back, you're always tired or mm. and wanting to go for walks and used to want to do things on a weekend and now you don't want to do anything. Mm. They stay in bed and 
you know, I, so I'm mm-hmm. concerned. It's particularly important because as we enter the the, the ember months or the months where we have a lot more less light, yes. I'm the effective yes. order is really seven percent of the population. Mm-hmm. So people feel, and that's really chemical because of the lack of light. Mm-hmm. And so there are things that one can do about that, like you know, get a light bulb in even a place like Home Depot that says daylight. Mm-hmm. It's a four dollar bulb. Put it in, put it in your house. Put it in the kitchen. Put it in the put it in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. It's a, 150 to 200 watt bulb improves the lighting and allows you to feel some of that daylight Mm. that that we're missing because Mm. we need to produce our chemicals again. People don't understand the chemical reaction Mm. that improves coenzymes in the brain that break down your norepinephrine and serotonin. And if you want to be very um, more clinical about it, you can go on Amazon and get a seasonal affective disorder light, which is Mm. 10,000 and cost you about 20 bucks. Actually, kids in college, I mean, especially kids from California because of all the sunlight, mm-hmm. when you get into a college in the north, especially mm-hmm. some of the heavy colleges, yes. that light is yes. part of yes. your welcome package. Yes, yes. So they know yes. that you're going, to, you're going to feel sad. That's amazing. So yeah, the, yeah the moving away from seeing sadness as something that's, you know, not to be talked about mm-hmm. is really important addressing it. So, mm-hmm. so a simple thing that families could even do today, just get more light into your house and in, in, in the colder months, hmm. you know, change your bulbs, um, you know, get more light into your house, change mm-hmm. light in the bathroom, change light in the kitchen. So mm-hmm. when you flip on all the lights, it's just brighter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that really makes a difference. So, mm-hmm. you know, watch out for things like that and insisting people get help. Mm-hmm. You know, reaching out and saying, look, I need you to get help. Help doesn't necessarily mean I need, I'm making an appointment for my, your psychiatrist. You can make an appointment for the primary care doctor. Most mm-hmm. primary care doctors know, and you can talk to the ones that, um, we all know, I mean, a large portion of their population is really psychiatric illness. Mm. Like this, this is really, really helpful, like really simple things. So I guess mm. the question, while you've been talking, I, I was just thinking about this. You know, um, the audience, there may be people out there listening and like, you know what, this is great. You know, how do I take a first step? You know, I've found out that I'm sad or maybe even worse. I can't get out of bed or I've noticed a loved one is in that state. But you may be, to your point, not necessarily Igbo, but Nigerian or one of the cultures where, you know, mental illness is still taboo and stigma. What would you say, how would you encourage them? And um, what are some of the cultural barriers to to our people seeking help? You know, again, it comes back to, oh, this person needs deliverance from a demon or this person who runs in their family or they're evil or somebody in their village is cast a spell. What would you say to them to kind of dispel that taboo and take the first step? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I I think it's hard, it really is, because the taboo is not just them, but as you know, it's promulgated by, you know, our churches and our leaders, mm-hmm. the Igbo culture and some of the other Nigerian cultures. And so it's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would, what I would say is remember, you know, it, it's, it's a medical illness. Mm-hmm. And you really don't have to discuss it with people. Yes. I mean, you really don't. And yes, I think surrounding yourself a lot of times by positive people alone is mental health treatment. But sometimes you pick up the phone and you're on the other end of the phone is always a friend or a family member who's complaining. Mm. I've been in mental health myself for 25 years. You don't take those calls. Mm. Really. Mm. You know, because that, you know, yeah. <laughs> because those things kind of pull you down. So what is the first step? The first step is, is this chemical or is this something I just need to talk to somebody and get over with? So mm. I would say, mm. you know, mm. talk to your primary care doctor, talk to your pastor, mm. you know, with your kid, talk to your school's teacher. Mm-hmm. Most 
most schools have counseling programs. Mm. You know, that reach out. But now things are really easy. People have, you know, if you're someone who's really up with online counseling, there are apps on your phone mm. that you can just, you know, pay 50 bucks and talk to a therapist. Mm. And the, the counselors and therapists will say, you know, I think maybe you need to seek additional help. Yes. Even talk to your regular doctor, your mm. everyday doctor. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I wanted to come in and talk to you about something. I wake mm. up in the morning, feel very nervous about my day. Mm. Sometimes I'm driving and I feel, and this is a very common thing when we, mm. we minimize Mm. You know, I know a lot of people that, you know, don't drive as much because they, whenever they're in the car, they, they feel anxious and they're, mm. okay, they say, boy, oh, I don't drive. Mm. You know, if you're a woman with three kids or two kids uh, and you don't really uh, drive, that alone is reducing, <laughs> that's reducing even your kids' ability yeah. to participate in the world we're in. So that's, yeah. those are the consequences I'm talking about. Mm. And it, it's an illness. It's just mm. a chemical, just like everything else. Mm. I would say, reach out to your primary care doctor. Mm. Um, you know, reach out to therapists, reach out to your ch- church group. Mm-hmm. A lot of churches have counseling areas mm-hmm. or people who, who listen to them, um, listen to the, you know, the, the congregation. Mm-hmm. And those would be the first steps if you're not familiar. Yes. Is it tab? We know it's not. We know we're not possessed by demons because mm-hmm. it's that hard, but it's, it's, it's a medical illness. Mm-hmm. And if you feel that somebody keeps thinking they're possessed by demons and you don't get help, mm. you that person will face those consequences. Yes. We've got a lot of evil people to suicide, mm. to epicide, you know, where you know, uh, you know, where a, a man kills his significant partner. Mm. From 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 feeling from these very firmly held beliefs that this person is trying to hurt me or this person is doing this to me, and people find it really hard to believe that, you know what you're thinking really isn't right. It's just mm-hmm. a, a mixture of chemicals that are just mm-hmm. not working. Mm-hmm. That, you know? I, I'm so glad you, you answered that. And the other thing, to, you, you know, uh, talking about the taboo and the stigma, to your point, you had mentioned this. It's not like you need to tell people that you're seeking help. It's something you can do. It's confidential, right? It's so, confidential. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And so. people actually also believe that, you know, it might affect my work. I, see, I hear that a lot from Nigerian families. Mm-hmm. It might affect my family. I had a very close friend of mine who's a physician who her son eventually, um, you know, a close friend of mine, uh, who her son killed his brother. Wow. You know, so, and he was in college, and she had great aspirations of going to medical school, and everybody was like, oh, if you tell somebody if you seek mental health treatment, um, you might not get into medical school. I just say, mm-hmm. I will dispel that. It's not true, but I, mm-hmm. I've actually had students, and I see a lot of students who want to go to medical school, and I tell them, well, if you're struggling with anxiety, or tell them that at the interview. Yes. Tell them that, and they will, they will love it. They love mm. to hear that yes. you are seeking help, you're taking care of yourself. That's the way you're going to take care of your mm. patient. Interesting. For the, every one of those people got yeah. into medical school. Right. You know? yeah. yeah, you see, so it, it's something that we say, oh, nobody can release your records. Nobody mm. knows they get your treatment unless you choose to tell mm. them. Mm. You know, job. I have patients who are... FBI director, CIA, top of the, you know, head of CIA. We can't tell anybody. You know, all the, you know, they can, they can, you only choose to release that information to who you want. So mm. let's become the president of the U.S., and I don't know how many presidents we're going to have, <laughs> but <laughs> it's, it's only, you're only, even if you're a senator, you're only mandated to release those records as a president if they request. And, mm. and also from our recent history, because recent is history, you know, we have a president now who never released his medical <laughs> record. So, so I, that's new for us. Yes, and we can, yes, in the psychiatric exactly. literature, we're even talking exactly. about the fact that a lot of times in our conferences that, you know, do we even have, does that even have to be released at yes, all? 
that's a you good know, point. I, I think it's very private. Yes. And, yes. You know, so I think people shouldn't be worried about, you know, it's not something you necessarily need to talk about. Yeah. And it's not something yeah. you're going to a doctor's office for. That, I'm so glad you you uh, you clarified that. So I want to ask you a question. It's it's a question I like to ask everyone. That's not related to psychiatry, but it's related okay. to you, Angela. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you met your 20 year old self, or even maybe your daughter, or somebody else who's coming up that's maybe 18 to 20, what would you say to them? And what do you wish someone had said to you, or that you've discovered that you wish you'd known when you were that age? <laughs> It's a good question. I, I think the key thing is that twenty-year-olds don't listen to most of the things we say anyway. <laughs> I think. I think maybe I. You know. I think sometimes I have a little bit more luck simply because psychiatry has taught me how to say those difficult things in a way that could be heard. Because one thing is telling somebody what they need to do, and the other person hearing it. But I think what some of us need continue to work on is how do we say something that somebody how do you say something in a way that somebody can actually hear it mm-hmm. i think that's one of the biggest you know things that i've kind of learned from psychiatry is how do you say that so mm-hmm. i would say to you know what what is some what would somebody have told me what would i like to say to a 20 year old like my daughter who will be 20 soon oh, okay. i would say basic things like i think the same things that most people say is that it really is a journey mm. it's not there's no, it's not a destination mm. It's like it's a long journey. So what are some of the things you need to prepare for any long journey? Mm-hmm. You know, like if we were all getting up and we say we were driving to Las Vegas, mm-hmm. well, do you need to have enough food? You have to eat healthy, you have to mm-hmm. exercise, you have to keep good habits. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to surround yourself. You don't want to be in a car with somebody who's complaining all the time on, on a long journey. So mm-hmm. okay, I would say surround yeah. yourself with positive people. Yes. I would yeah. say it's... It, 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 it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Mm-hmm. You know, coming closer to 60 decades, it's really a marathon. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's what I would like to have known, that um, not, don't rush too much because mm-hmm. you're not going anywhere, mm-hmm. rushing, mm-hmm. simply because it's a lot of time, you know, and at the end of the day, it's going to be fine. And mm-hmm. I think one of my favorite theologians, and I would say one of my favorite mod- role models in terms of um, understanding human behavior, is the old English, a female English theologian that lived in 1342. It was way back then, mm. you know, 1342. And um, so she's called Julian of Norwich, and she wrote the book on divine love. Mm. And one of the things she always said in her book, almost at the end of every chapter was, it is well, it shall be well. Mm. All manner of things mm. will be well. Mm. And I know that a lot in the evil culture. We say it is well, it is well. Mm, yeah. you know, that, a lot of that saying came from that Julian of Norwich. It shall be well. Wow. It, it, yeah, it really will be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, enjoy it. And one of the things I wish I had learned a little bit more when I was younger, which I think I'm doing, working more with now, is kind of developing a healthy relationship with God. Mm. And starting that early, I think, is important because even when you're young and you're healthy and everything is going in the right direction, you don't think you need it. But mm. as you get older mm. and you, 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 you get life's knocks and mm. things happen, you're going to need to cling mm. to your God. When the storm comes, that's going to be the stability mm. and kind of learning how to develop that relationship earlier and learning how to lean earlier because you're going to need to cling more. Mm. When you're older, it just makes it easier if you develop that relationship earlier. You know, so... Mm. Uh, so what is you know you know learning how to you know read those Bible passages that really help you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. learning to understand your 
spirituality and mm. kind of continue to sustain it. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I say, you know, listen to your parents. <laughs> so they, you know, that's really hard to hear. Yes. I know it's hard, right? You know, I really didn't want to, but one thing I listened <laughs> to them in because I went to, I went, I ended up in medical school. I never wanted to be a doctor. Mm. I, I did not apply to be one. Mm. So I, I thought I was going to be this hotshot engineer mm. and, I, was, I loved math and mm. tried to be one, but back in the day in Nigeria, everything used to go through jam, and mm-hmm. jam was put in those days, and I got this letter out of the blue from a new campus in Sukkot that says, you, please, you know, you, you, we decided to take you to med school. Mm. I'm like, are you kidding? Mm. I said, mm. you know, you need to go. Yes, you want to be a chemical engineer. You know, they're asking you to come to medical school. You know, go ahead and do it. Mm. Sometimes the hard way is the right way. Yes. I'm glad I listened. I've been listening for 40 years and every day has been a blast. That's so amazing. So, so amazing. So, Angela, can you talk to us about what your favorite non-fiction book is and why? Okay, that's a great question. There's so many books and I know we all have very limited time to read. Mm. One of my favorite books was written by Don Miguel Ruiz, R-U-I-Z. And it was actually an opera Oprah's um, kind of book list or favorite book list about maybe 12 or 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it was a while ago. But one of the, so it was written by Don Miguel and it's called The Four Agreements. And um, it's a really small book, which is why it's really easy to read. And that's why I like it a lot. And I keep going back to it, you know, year after year, month after month, especially when one is going through, um, you know, life challenges. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I about it a lot is that, so it's The Four Agreements, just the four very simple ways. It's built on top telic wisdom so it's you know um and it really talks about kind of the four things to always keep at the forefront of your mind mm. and, um so it, you know and so one of the things are like so so once you agree with these things it says you know kind of think about these things every day mm. think about you know reflect every day and then once you can stick as closely to these things as possible you just be a happier person mm. you know and so one of the the first agreement is be impeccable with your words. So the same thing that we hear all the time, you know, speak with integrity, mm. try to say what you mean. Mm. Um, don't use the word to, you know, to speak out against yourself. Stop mm. saying I'm, I'm ignorant. I'm, you know, mm. don't do that because, you know, words have power. Mm. I think the second thing it says is don't take anything personally. And that's also hard to do because mm. it, one thing it does is drill down a lot on kind of making you really realize that a lot of things other people do um, it's really not about you. It's mm. their own issues. Mm. In society, that's easier for me to get, but for people, a lot of times, it's not. And mm. you, we can reflect on how injured we all feel when mm. somebody does something. We're like, oh, my God, I can't believe he did this to mm. me. I can't believe she did this to me. Mm. If it was me, would I do this to her? Mm. You know, how could she have said this about me? But if you stop, you just have to tell yourself, stop. You know, don't take it personally. Mm. It has nothing to do with you. Mm. And if, you know, it's just like you're wearing a red shirt and somebody doesn't like red and they say, oh, I can't stand red and blah, blah. So mm. things like that, mm. it added, take it personally, it's their business. But when people do things, we don't take it personally. So mm. I think that agreement is don't make assumptions. You know, when somebody says something or is doing something and, you know, you assume that he's going to take the kids to school because you have to be in the hospital at 5 o'clock in the morning. Or you assume that, you know, your, your mom is going to come because you told her. Or You know, don't, don't make assumptions. Communicate very clearly your needs, you know. Mm-hmm. If somebody has a question, if you need something, tell the person, this is what I need, this is why I need it. Let that person understand what the issues are. Don't assume. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that, you know, oh, it's my birthday this today, and you know, my, I'm, you know, my spouse, my husband, my partner, my kids are gonna have a cake waiting. They may mm-hmm. even have forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then you come back and like, I can't believe they did this to me. I, I run this whole house, and they do, you know. <laughs> And sometimes they don't forget, but they have another conflicting meeting. Yeah. And they decided to do the meeting and get to you at 10 p.m. because yeah. if it was them, they wouldn't mind. Yeah. But they, what you do mind. Yeah. So that's the don't take it personally. Don't assume. And you could always say, you know, it's my birthday this evening. And, you know, honey, I would like to spend the evening with you if it's okay because it's important to me. And you've clarified things. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and uh, so I think that's really one of the things. And then I think the last agreement, you know, it's all, really what we tell each other all, all the time is always do your best. You know, so whatever you're doing, try to do your best. And I think our best changes at different mm-hmm. times in our lives due to different circumstances. Mm-hmm. But do the best. And I think the advantage of that is when you've really done your best, you yourself would know. Mm-hmm. When you've really done your best, you tend not to regret things or, you know, be, feel guilty or mm-hmm. self-accuse yourself or mm-hmm. judge yourself. And these emotions have power. You know, it just it pulls you down. We always say, if I had done this, mm-hmm. if I had done this, there's a lot of self-regret. Yeah. And I think that could be avoided a lot of times if we up front do the best we can. And that doesn't mean you have to do everything. It's just this is the best I did. Mm-hmm. And I think we all know when we do our best. We're like, okay, whatever happens, yeah. you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Let let the people fall where they may, mm-hmm. especially if you've done your best. So mm-hmm. I, I really like it. It's great reading and it's one of the few books that I, I, I can read every day. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that with us. This has been wonderful, Angela. Before you go, though, because I'm sure people are like, well, how can we reach out to Angela? We have so many questions. We want to follow up. What is the best way to reach you? I know you have a, your practice website, email, yes, social practice media. Website. Mm-hmm. My practice is um, Solutions for Mindfulness. The website is www.solutionsformindfulness. And one of the interesting things, especially for people who have um, who are thinking they may have problems, who may be depressed. You know, there are really options that are not medical and they're not medication-wise, that are not, med- you know, that are not medication. A lot of times we have a lot of stigma against medication because we think, okay, these mental health medications, they're going to control us. And mm. I'm really excited about is recently, you know, we started, we've introduced a system when we, it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation, hmm. where somebody who may be depressed, you're just using almost like an MRI or magnetic waves to the forefront of their brain to just improve their oxygen flow hmm. and to kind of get the brain back and working and active again. Hmm. And so, that, so that's something that we're doing newly, and I'm excited about that. Hmm, so the best way is just the website, info at solutionsforminds.com. We're on Facebook, Solutions for Minds, Solutions for Mindfulness. Hmm. You can reach us by email at info at solutionsforminds.com and mm-hmm. um, our phone number 410-992-3796. Just, you know, call, just chat, send me an email, you know, send me a message on Facebook, you know, even just a, even just a chat. You don't have to be seeking mental health treatment. <laughs> you can just be <laughs> expanding your thoughts on, you know, that I had this, I was thinking about this. What do you think? Mm-hmm. This has been so wonderful, Angela. And, and just for the audience, all the information as to how to reach Angela will be in the show notes as well. So I'll put that out there. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Angela. This has been great. Thank you. Okay, you take care. Thank you too for having me. Sure. That was so helpful. I hope you enjoyed it. 
We will have links to Angela's website in addition to the books she recommended on our website at www.vebo.com. You can also access the links to other episodes and subscribe to this podcast to receive downloads of the latest episodes. Please check out the website and provide feedback. Also, do follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ebo Initiative. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.